Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring issues of measurement and methodology in nursing research and practice. This is Season 2, Episode 20, and I'm your host, Ian Lane. If you like what I'm doing and have enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com or visit my website at about.me forward slash Ian Lane. As always, all opinions shared on this podcast are my own and do not reflect my employer, university, or affiliates. And nothing I share on this episode or any other of the podcast constitutes or should be misconstrued as medical advice or advice of any kind. Everything presented here is for educational purposes only. Today, I want to review a paper with you entitled Reducing Readmissions After Stroke with a Structured Nurse Practitioner Registered Nurse Transitional Stroke Program, published in 2016 in the journal Stroke by Condon et al. The problem that this paper seeks to address is essentially that We still don't know a lot about proper post-acute care for patients with stroke who are discharged to home. And as of today, well, I should rephrase, as of 2016, there had been no successful interventions that existed at that time, which successfully reduced readmission rates in post-stroke patients. And These patients' needs are often complex and multifactorial, and you can imagine the kinds of complications that stroke patients could face, especially being sent home. I mean, there are going to be physical barriers, of course, but there are also going to be cognitive and behavioral and emotional and motivational barriers, as well as interpersonal barriers. I mean, thinking just uh, about one factor, which is language barriers for those patients who might be aphasic, for example. Apparently, as well, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid have a national 30-day risk-adjusted all-cause readmission rate cap, after which they'll start to penalize hospital systems with increased readmission rates compared to that standard. So that was one of the motivating factors or the impetus for this sort of project that was undertaken for this paper. And there are previous research articles that have shown that transitional care models led by nurse practitioners has shown good efficacy in geriatric patients in cardiology, according to the authors. So, you know, it would make sense that we would want to see whether this is the case as well in neuroscience services. Effective programs of the type that they describe here about nurse practitioners and TSC models really heavily focus on self-management of disease and have a higher number of interactions and interventions with participants in the home. Um, Relative risk reductions for these programs can be about 37% reduced readmission rates, that is, which is quite good. Um, I haven't seen those previous data, so I I can't verify those numbers for myself. And they may look different as, you know, 2016 was, of course, almost five years ago at this point. So it's difficult for me to, to, to validate that number. But I will take that on faith. Um, in stroke patients specifically, there's this problem that the authors describe as cumulative complexity 
which is basically a combination of patients' life demands, capacity, and the burden for treatment, that this cumulative complexity really has to be addressed for an effective program of this type. And this particular TSC program really tried to address this problem of cumulative complexity. The primary aim of this study, the purpose rather, was quality improvement. They wanted to assess a QI-QA approach here and to develop the NP-led TSC clinic, including follow-up calls by an RN and comprehensive and early assessments by an NP within a few days after discharge. The specific primary aims of the study were to learn whether this TSC model, which they improved across two phases, reduced 30 or 90-day readmissions for patients that were discharged home from acute stroke hospitalization, which included ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes, as well as TIAs. So what did they do exactly? What was their methodology here? This was a single-center, prospective, pre-post-modification study design. So uh, really, that sounds complicated, but single-center just means it was at one hospital. Prospective, so contrasted with retrospective, which would be they looked at historical or archival data or something like that. Um, Prospective means they established the study design and then went forth from there and conducted the study. And then the pre-post design just means that there was no comparator comparator group um, such as would be seen in, for example, a randomized controlled trial. Um, This, the pre part of the pre-post design was the phase one data and the post was the phase two data. So this is essentially repeated measures design with the same sample, but the the real uh, comparison was pre-post phase one and phase two, respectively. Um, Their TRACS program, or what's called a transitional coaching for stroke, really focused on education and coaching after discharge from neuroscience service lines to assess the immediate needs of patients who've been discharged home. They excluded patients discharged anywhere besides to directly to their homes, and their inclusion criteria included patients on anticoagulation, patients with multiple barriers to care, and patients with poor social support. These factors were noted by the NPs during patients' hospitalization stay. Over two phases of program development, they included a structured follow-up phone call and office visits by an RN and NP, respectively. Phase one included structured follow-up phone calls by an NP within seven days of discharge. And these calls included prescription reconciliation, monitoring of COAG status, if applicable, and reminders of scheduled therapy appointments and evaluation of any red flags. And then the NP saw them in the clinic within two to four weeks of discharge after that call. This was phase one. So this TSA model was updated for phase two, which was actually initiated about two years after the first model. The first phase was developed by this group. So they kept the structured phone calls at follow-up, as with the prior phase. But this time, these were performed by the RN, and they were performed within two business days of discharge. 
The goal of the structured transitional care nurse practitioner clinic visits was to schedule them within 7 to 14 days for all discharged patients in this phase. And these meetings included stroke education, secondary prevention, (laughs) functional recovery, excuse me, medication adherence, and evaluation for post-stroke complications. Moving on to the data analysis plan and statistical analyses, these authors collected data on medical history at discharge, phone calls at follow-up, TSC clinic visits, and three-month outcomes. So you can tell they're looking for process-related data as well as outcomes-related data. The primary outcomes for this study were 30- and 90-day readmission rates. These data were collected one of three different ways, either by phone interview, medical record review, or mailed questionnaires by the TRACS team. And their model included patient demographics, medical history, and stroke severity as covariates. Stroke severity was used uh, was using the initial um, National Institutes of Health Stroke Scale, or the NIHSS. We'll come back to this scale in another episode. This measure really deserves its own episode altogether. There's a complicated literature on the clinometric or the clinicometric properties of this instrument. While it's the gold standard in this field, at least for ischemic stroke anyway, we'll cover its validity and reliability in a different podcast. I think for the purposes of this paper, it's less crucial for their primary outcome based on my read of their data. I could be wrong, but that's how it strikes me. They created a study variable as well, continuing on with covariates here, on a Likert scale from 0 to 3, which represented comorbidities, or concurrent chronic conditions as they say, which has been shown in a previous paper to increase the risk of poor outcomes after stroke. I can't help but wonder whether there are other comorbidity indices they could have used here rather than construct their own variable which is already validated in post-acute stroke populations similar to their own, given that these multi-morbid problems actually factored into their results later from the multivariable model. In any event, the comorbidities included in this variable were diabetes, coronary artery disease, and CHF in different combinations or all three together. As I said, processes of care were also collected, and these included whether patients were scheduled for a TSC visit, whether they received a phone call from the RN or NP, and whether patients actually showed up to these visits at follow-up. Earlier, I mentioned that this was a pre-post-modification study. The pre-component was phase one, and the post-component was phase two. Important to recognize here is that because there's no comparator group, which is not receiving either intervention, we cannot make claims about the efficacy of the TRACS program for post-acute stroke patients broadly. We can only make claims about phase two results as compared with phase one data. The idea being, we are presuming that TRACS is beneficial generally, and perhaps it is. They may have published previous research to that effect prior to 2016 that I'm just not aware of, or since then, really, that, I'm not, that I've not seen. But we're really asking the question, is this expanded and adapted version of phase one into the new phase two protocol more effective at reducing readmissions at 30 and 90 days, respectively? So how did they analyze these data? Firstly, Univariate pre-post comparisons were assessed either by chi-square tests for proportions or Wilcoxon signed rank tests for matched pairs. 
Remember that the Wilcoxon rank test is a non-parametric test, robust to violations of assumptions of normality in these data. This is the correct test for them to have used for the continuously distributed variables, but which don't follow a Gaussian distribution. Multivariate logistic regression models were used to evaluate 30 and 90 day readmission rates using stepwise selection. Their selection added as pre-specified covariates the NIHSS, history of previous stroke or TIA, and presence of hospitalizations before the index stroke in their stepwise selection procedure. This indicates to me that they used a forward variable selection approach, but they don't actually say this explicitly. In stepwise regression, there are notably forward selection and backward elimination approaches, and there are different reasons for choosing each of those methods. The real question that arises for me now includes how they selected their model for this logistic regression. They don't describe in this paper whether their model selection arose out of an Akaiki information criteria or a Bayesian information criteria procedure, which would be important to do here as blindly relying on stepwise logistic regression without model fitting, say with an AIC procedure, can reduce both predictive validity and the reliability of their conclusion. So this is actually something that I find particularly interesting because it's quite possible that they did a model fit with a, an AIC or BIC procedure and they just did not report on doing it. But typically people would report that because it strengthens the validity and reliability of their results. So turning to those results now, 510 patients were enrolled in the TRACS program after discharge to home in total. The mean age for these patients was 65 years, but this ranged from 52 to 78 years of age. About half the sample were females and half were males, which is a nice distribution of both. For those interested, the median NIHSS score for stroke severity was 2, and the range was 1 to 5. But as I say, we'll talk more about the NIHSS in a different episode. From phase one to phase two, the total proportion of people discharged home were who enrolled in tracks increased by 23%. They don't show us those data, but presumably this says something positive about the feasibility and acceptability of this program. In terms of the differences in baseline characteristics of individuals enrolling in the tracks program from phase one to phase two, Patients in the latter category in phase two had significantly lower rates of hypertension and hyperlipidemia. And the other things, other characteristics were largely the same. A really interesting implementation point to bring up here is that compared to phase one, the phase two data of track seemed to show that RNs in phase two made 33% more follow-up phone calls than the NPs did in phase one with a p-value of 0.0001. So that's really interesting. The days from discharge to TSC visit with the NP decreased from 19 to 17 days. So the NPs were still seeing patients in both phases pretty similarly. Though the authors report these as statistically significantly different. But I find it fascinating either way that augmenting the burden of NPs calling patients by having the RNs do this actually increased follow-up calls significantly. One can imagine a scenario with additional data collected where this change alone 
might account for finding significant issues that follow up and catching them in future research anyway, possibly before any serious consequences occurred with these patients. Patients who did not show up for their TSC visits were 7% more likely to have AFib and 11% more likely to have diabetes. Both of these data are reported as statistically significant, but I can't actually locate the tabulated AFib data in this paper anywhere. <laughs> um, I believe it, I just don't see them. And maybe now is a good time to touch on the multiple comparisons problem here. I know I've talked about multiple comparisons before, but I can't see anywhere in this paper either where these authors performed any post hoc multiple comparison procedures to control for false discoveries or type 1 errors. Um, they did conduct 46 univariate pairwise comparisons in all, 33 if you don't include those regarding patient characteristics at baseline. And if you only look at those statistically significant results, there were 12 of them. I don't see a description anywhere from the authors as to whether there was a Bonferrani correction or any similar stepwise error rate correction leveraged to check the robustness of these significant alphas. You can actually do this yourself by calculating the family-wise error rate to determine the likelihood that at least one of these pairwise comparisons is a false positive across the whole family of comparison tests. The procedure to do this is actually quite simple. It's just 1 minus 1 minus alpha to the power of m. That sounds complicated on audio, but if you saw it, it's actually just a 1 minus open parentheses 1 minus 0.05, because 0.05 is the alpha, close parentheses, to the power of m in this case stands for the total number of hypothesis tests conducted. So in this case, there were 46 total. In this case, if we do this family-wise error rate calculation for all 46 tests, there's a 91% chance that at least one of these significant findings isn't and is actually a type 1 error or a false positive. If instead we actually only used the 12 significant results we had, we'd still find a 46% chance that at least one of these results is a type 1 error. The reason this is important, as you'll see, is because one of the most important findings in this paper is right on the cusp of significant and may actually be non-significant should they have done a false discovery rate test like the Benjamini-Hochberg procedure, for example. The authors found in this study that reasons for 30-day readmissions in 46 patients from their sample included 14 new stroke or stroke-like symptoms, 7 cardiac problems, 6 infections, 3 carotid or aneurysm procedures, 2 for bleeding problems, 2 for renal failure, and 2 for electrolyte or metabolic disturbances, and then there were 10 for, quote, other reasons, unquote, which they did not go on to describe for us. Recall that this procedure was designed to be a pre-post study. They found that the phase of the study was not associated with readmission rates at all. I want to reiterate, phase of the study, phase one to phase two, was not associated with readmission rates. Since we can't make generalizable claims with external validity beyond the phased tracks program at this single site, and the primary outcome for this project was to see whether post-phase 2 modifications looked statistically significantly improved compared to phase 1, we have officially transitioned from pre-post testing to observational study territory, because at this point, they decide to combine the data, 
to presumably then just look at everything altogether as a single repeated measures regression. From this, they showed that patients receiving the follow-up calls, whether from NP or RN, remember these are now combined, was associated with a higher likelihood of showing for the TSA appointment, but the p-value was exactly 0.05 for this, given the 91% chance of at least a type 1 error. And do we believe that this result is true? I don't mean to malign the authors for this or insinuate that they're doing it intentionally, but rarely do p-values equal exactly 0.05. And maybe this was 0.049, and so they rightly rounded up, which is fine. Or maybe it was actually 0.051, in which case it's actually a non-significant finding in general. There really is no such thing as trending towards significance. Null hypothesis significance testing is such that you either receive a result that is or is not significant. There is no trend. And yes, 0.05 is arbitrary, but it's still a cutoff. And partly why I bring this up is because they say, quote, for patients with 90-day readmission, there was a trend toward lower show rates for TSC, end quote, with a p-value of 0.088. I have never seen anyone claim in a paper before that p equals 0.088 is trending towards significance. As you know, I don't even like that statement in general, but mostly people inappropriately use that to claim a 0.052 or 0.059 is, quote, trending, but a 0.088? And now I'm just, I'm picking on them a little bit, but that's silly. Finally, they conducted multivariable models and showed that TSC visits were independently associated with a, quote, 48% reduction in 30-day readmissions with an odds ratio of 0.518. Ignoring the fact that this is sort of irrelevant since it no longer answers the initial pre-post question, which the original paper, excuse me, which the paper originally sought to answer. And these are from the combined data, presumably since they've already told us that there are no phase-related relationships of TSC to readmissions at either 30 or 90 days. But I have questions about this finding too, that finding being the 0.518 odds ratio. The 95% confidence interval for this odds ratio ranges from 0.272 to 0.986. That means there's a range of 1.4% reduction to 73% reduction, into which, with repeated sampling, the true point estimate for this result may actually lie. The range itself is 72 percentage points. That's enormous. And to make matters worse, their p-value for this was actually 0.045, which was also right on the cusp of significant. And recall, there is a 91% chance with all univariate comparisons added together that this could be a false positive. Furthermore, odds ratios that overlap with or equal to 1 are rarely, really almost never, actually statistically significant. And while this result did not actually equal or cross 1, it's so close to 1 that 0.986 makes me a little bit wary of accepting the confidence interval anyway. And maybe most importantly, at 90 days, the TSC visits were no longer statistically significantly related to readmission rates anyway. So, you know, 30-day readmissions is the more important calculation for this paper. But to my mind, if 30-day readmissions is significantly different, but 90 days isn't, ultimately, 
what impact does that have long-term for these patients? The authors did run a C-index calculation for a model that included multiple chronic conditions, previous stroke, and a, quote, trend toward more severe strokes, which I presume they were using the NIHSS for, and previous hospitalizations that showed that there, these were related to 30-day readmissions. The C-index in this case was 0 0.710. They also showed in another similar model that a C in, with a C-index of 0 0.722 that previous stroke, previous hospitalization, male sex, and multiple chronic conditions using their newly developed variable scaled from 0 to 3, you'll recall, these were all significantly associated with readmissions. The C-index, by the way, stands for concordance index, and this ranges from 0 0.5 to 1.0 and equals the area under the receiving operator, the receiver operating characteristic curve, rather, the rock curve. This is a goodness of fit test for binary variables in logistic regression. 0 0.8 is considered a strong model, and 0 0.5 is considered poor, and anything below that is considered very poor. So 0 0.7 is actually considered a good model. So in this case, the authors had both C indices of above 0 0.7. So these were considered good models. So while I don't necessarily believe their TSC program can reliably be said to reduce readmission at 30 days, as they'd like to claim, I do think that they showed pretty well which factors were related to readmission, which I have to imagine map on pretty well to other similar literatures. So what are my main takeaways here? I know there are some points where I've been a bit harsh on the results of this paper, but I have two final points to make, which I think will make up for that a, a bit. I don't normally do this, but I feel compelled to read you the limitations section and the strengths section in their discussion, because I feel they did a tremendous job outlining these accurately and thoroughly. I rarely see such thoughtful discussion with respect to strengths and limitations in papers. Quote, there are some limitations to this study. The setting was a single academic tertiary referral center with a wide referral region. It was designed as an observational quality improvement study to reduce readmissions rather than a randomized controlled study. The patient population was limited to those discharged home and not to outside inpatient rehabilitation or skilled nursing facilities, which make up 50% of the total population of patients discharged from our facility. Excuse me. The analysis cohort represents a small sample of our overall population, especially in phase one. The number of patients readmitted relatively, was relatively small, and as such, detecting differences between phases with unplanned analyses limited the power. The ascertainment of readmissions included direct contact with patients by phone, occurring more frequently in phase, phase one, or questionnaires completed by patients or proxies initiated in phase two, both of which allowed documentation for patients admitted to other facilities. In the case of missing data, there was a manual review of medical records to determine readmission back to the hospital. We were therefore unable to track readmissions to other hospitals for every patient in our cohort. That's a big one. Based on readmission reports from the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, beneficiaries discharged to any location, 30% of our patients were readmitted to facilities other than our hospital. Although the cohort in our analyses is quite different, 
all ages and payer sources and only those discharged home, the readmission rates are likely to be higher than those reported in this analysis. And again, that's their primary outcome. Lastly, although our target in phase two was to have seen patients seen in the TSC within 14 days, our median time from discharge to clinic visit was 17 days. There are several strengths to this study. With minimal resources, we have built a model of transitional care that is patient-centered, longitudinal, and designed to monitor and analyze the effectiveness of processes of care pre- and post-modifications to our model. It is important to note that our model is consistent with the concept of cumulative complexity because patients who have had multiple strokes or TIAs and multiple comorbidities, diabetes, coronary artery disease, and CHF, clearly increase risk of admission. These characteristics are now included in our discharge screening for patients at high risk of readmission, and we will make concerted efforts to work with primary care and cardiology after discharge of, for patients with these high-risk conditions, end quote. This was absolutely fabulous. They hit the nail on the head with all the limitations. They did a wonderful job writing that up. I, As I said, I rarely see such thorough and thoughtful uh, limitation sections. I mean, this literally lasted about a half a page. Most people have a half a paragraph that describes half-heartedly what their limitations actually are. And furthermore, I agree vehemently with their strengths. I think they're completely right. I think that building such a model is actually incredibly difficult. And they have instituted these implementation changes as a result of these findings, regardless of their their robustness in terms of the analyses. So this was great. But then they go off to say in their conclusion, quote, in summary, we showed that an NP nurse team and a standardized comprehensive approach to transitional care for stroke patients discharged home can effectively reduce 30-day readmissions, end quote. No, no, you did not. That finding may not be legitimate anyway, and it's also not related to the initial pre-post study design as things were changed after you precisely did not find any relationship of study phase, which was the point of the project to readmission rates. So, no, this is the only thing that really bothers me about clinical research. Results show one thing. Findings are then written up as a one-liner summary conclusion somewhere in the discussion to say what they wanted the results to show, but not what they actually showed. So this is the only thing I really wish we could get away from in academic research. But for those of you listening who are wondering why they might have done this, my take is the reason is precisely because if they didn't spin it this way, the program might lose funding or they might not be able to fund the next project of a similar or larger magnitude, for example, or maybe that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare may enact some sort of disciplinary action as they aptly noted in their introduction. So I suspect that's there was that's the impetus for this overstatement of the claims here, but there was a probably a better way to phrase that that would have framed it as impactful as it it was, without blatantly or flagrantly misrepresenting the the actual conclusion. Finally, my personal opinion of the paper is that while I view some of the results as tenuous. I do think this is an incredibly important contribution to the literature, and I hope they conduct follow-up studies of this program. I'd love to know what they're doing now with this. I think that with greater statistical power to detect effects, and perhaps an RCT design, we may come to learn in a couple of years that this sort of thing is the new gold standard of care. 
I may not agree with the findings per se here in this particular paper, but I do indeed agree with their discussion and their rationale in terms of the strengths they see from this paper and the implementation results that they have found. And I think that this is a great start to improving healthcare quality for post-stroke patients. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed the episode, please rate it five stars on iTunes and share this channel with any friends in healthcare. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. And if I ever review a paper you are the author on and would like to join me to discuss the paper or some other work you are doing, please send a note via email to that effect. And finally, I do this show because it helps me learn and not because I want to pretend to be the expert on these topics. My objective is simply to grow as a clinician researcher and to promote this content for other like-minded people. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.